In the game, they get a point. We, we scored a perfectly good goal, make it 2 0. Game's done, done, dusted. We win the game. Fish has cost you two points, Dave. It's standard. 10 past 10. Most of the children are probably in bed, but these, these boys are fucking mentality giants. It's unbelievable. She clearly hasn't he the funniest shape. He's a little chunky fella. They'll fight for the tree. The joke. Gone about far this, far that. Help the officials out. Clearly, they need help. Clearly, we play in the Premier League. It's a joke. It's a joke. Hello and welcome to this week's Tree at the Back podcast, brought to you by BackpageFootball.com. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, everywhere you can get listen to a podcast, you will find Tree at the Back. So we would hugely appreciate if you could hit the subscribe button and keep up to date with us for the season. In part two of the show, we're going to have a little La Liga chat with Robbie Dunn of Spain's AS. But first, I'm here as always with Keen and Phil to talk about the Premier League action this past weekend. How are you, lads? Hey Kev, how are you Chaps, how are things? So Leds, I think we'll jump straight into Monday night's one-all draw between Wolves and Manchester United. Um, and the talking point coming out of that one, thankfully was, wasn't was anything to do with VAR, even though it nearly, um, it nearly ruled out a goal of the season contender from Ruben Neves. Um, but uh, United's own self-inflicted downfall really from the penalty spot. Um, so having won the penalty in the first place, Pogba stepped up. Um, had a shot saved by Rui Patricio, which in fairness was a, a fairly good save. Um, but immediately the question was raised as to why Pogba was taking the penalty and not Marcus Rashford, who had scored last weekend against Chelsea um, from the penalty spot. So in the aftermath of this, I don't think anyone has come out particularly well, not least Ali Gunnar Solskjaer, who says he leaves it up to the players to decide who gets to take the penalty. Um, Phil, what did you make of the position United have left themselves in, in addition to dropping two points here? Yeah, I, I think it just kind of adds further fuel to this fire of like this organisation at United after a really, really positive opening weekend result, uh, regardless of the performance, which kind of touched on last week. It was a really positive result to take into this game, which was a tricky away fixture. And like this, this opportunity presents itself to kind of grab the lead again and maybe go on and win the game. Like it happens, it seems to happen once or twice a season to a couple of teams. The fact that it's happened to United is obviously it's a bigger story, um, and the fact that it's Pogba is again a bigger story. Like you said, Solskjaer saying he leaves it up to the players feels a little bit of a cop out. Like it, it, as far as I'm aware and concerned, most managers just pick a penalty taker, and he's a penalty taker until he's not anymore. Um, it feels like it removes any of this messing. Um, I don't think it's a massive deal, but I just don't think it helps the optics of the situation. And like you said, they dropped two points, which never helps. I, I kind of, uh, I'd be on the same lines in terms of, yeah, to be honest, lads, you've got, they're, at, they're grown adults. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, managers maybe should designate a penalty taker, or at least that the penalty taker should know uh, exactly who's taking the penalties and, and set pieces free kicks beforehand but at the end of the day they're they're grown adults they can make decisions on the pitch that there shouldn't be a, a, this massive forward and I, I think I honestly think if it wasn't Paul Pogba it wouldn't be that much of an issue but because because it's the guy that basically everybody loves giving a bit of a kick in it, it, it's just exacerbated the issue 
Um, like it, the, the penalty itself was a very good penalty. I mean, okay, it was a little bit sort of it was at the goalkeeper's height, but struck firmly, you know, to the side. It was a great save. Uh, like Gary Neville going off on one on on Monday Night Football, you know, just seemed to just be so out of kilter with the actual scenario. Um, I know he, he probably, as a United fan, it probably hurt, but. I think he was kind of overboard about the whole thing, and, and just it just seemed to sort of, yeah, I just it just seemed to be much more of a talking point than it actually really was. Um, I thought, out of all the uh, the kind of characters in the situation, that if you're Marcus Rashford and you've scored a penalty last weekend, and fair enough, he probably looks up to Pogba, and Pogba is obviously a vastly superior player at this point of his career. I mean, should Rashford be demanding the penalty? I mean, like I, I think it's equally valid for Rashford to look for it, and it's equally valid for Pogba. I can't tell. Him. Like Keane said, like they're grown adults. It, like this sort of robust conversation probably shouldn't have them like on the pitch. But like they're they're players with two. Like you have to be an ego driven person to be a professional footballer. You have to think that you're the best person for the job. So Rashford's going to think he is. Mm. Pogba equally is as well, especially with Pogba having won it. So like. I can also see why you're not getting into like Lee Boyer and uh, Kieran Dyer situation where you're boxing the head of each other for a penalty. But Pogba's I, I penalty record was, was quite good as well. Pogba had only was it the the graphic had come up on the screen before before he took it, and it was like was it four? He'd scored four out of five, or maybe it was three out of four. So yeah, it was the one it's against not Everton as if, he missed last year, maybe. Yeah, exactly. So it wasn't exactly, you know, it wasn't a situation where, you know, he was he, he, like, it was a McDonald's employee taking a penalty for United. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, in essence, like, there's a world class World Cup winner who is an excellent striker of the ball and um, with, like, you would say, reasonably decent temperament. So it's like, it's not, it's not as if, it's not as if Marcus Rashford is, is Alan Shearer. Reincarnated? Do you know what I mean? Well, Alan Shearer's not obviously dead, but you, you know what I mean. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like, he's not got it. Like, this is a superior uh, penalty-taking record that 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 you know usurps everybody else. So it's like, yeah, it just it just seemed a big hullabaloo over nothing, uh, as far as I was concerned. But and again, it just it just seemed like just another way to to kick Pogba. Um, yeah. Who actually had quite a good game, I thought. Um, that, I, like that's I, the thing. I, yeah, like they, they like the, the narrative has been reframed around Pogba for this game that like you know he like he ruined the performance and that he was like selfish and like he I think somebody uh, I can't remember what media one of the red tops had that he was unspectacular uh, in the match last night, but like he had the most complete passes, he had the most recoveries for like a player who's routinely chastised as being lazy, he had the most ball recoveries of anyone in the entire game. Um, I, he had the. I think he he won most of his jails. All the like all the kind of positive stats you're looking for from a combative, combative midfielder. He had. It's just there was this incident, and because like you say, Kenny's Pogba. Yeah, like uh, yeah, exactly. And and y- y- you know, there's this sort of like, there's this like you said, Phil. There's this narrative as like this kind of like frame of him kind of being lazy and whatnot, and and like. The, the first two games of the season, he's actually performed really well. He's got stuck in and, you know, he's worked hard. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily suit um, how how he's been framed in pre-season about wanting to move and all this kind of thing. So, yeah, um, it's just, it, it's 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 kind of, it, it's, nearly exasper- it's nearly exasperating in itself, kind of like, you know, having to deal with the, the big hubbub about it all. 
Um, Keen, I saw you tweet us about it last night and I mm. kind of thought the same is that Manchester United kind of they, they seem to be getting somewhere um, mm. and they seem to have a bit of a plan um, I thought Aaron Wambasaka he looks very good defensively and he threw in a mm. couple of great tackles um, Daniel James looks like he has a bit of bite to him um, I think he got caught for diving at one point which, which mm. obviously didn't come across very well on him um, but I think Solskjaer showing fate in Anthony Martial and basically discarding Lukaku to free up that forward line for him. Um, I mean, he looks reborn here in, in that number nine role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I thought he was... I, I, in, the, in the first two games, I think he's been really, really good. I mean, United, I think... Well, at least I, this is just looking from the outside in, obviously, like Solskjaer kind of wants to go back to this sort of United um, being able to dominate smaller teams and play a bit of football and then playing on the counter-attack against possession-based sides. And like, you know, United fans might disagree with me, but that's always the impression I had of of Alex Ferguson teams. Um, They played with a lot of pace and they would break on you um, quite efficiently. And obviously with players like Dan James, who who Soul Charge brought in over the summer, Martial, Rashford, Lingard, um, and when you've got a ball player in midfield like Pogba, who can release them with, with, with um, you know, a quick, short range, long range passing, I think it's it's definitely a weapon that he's looking to utilise. And I think you've seen that in the, in the opening two games. Um, the, the the interesting one for me is is actually is McTominay in, in midfield at that that anchor role. He's kind of like I actually been quite impressed um, by by McTominay. I think he's. He, he's he's done a good job for a very young player with limited experience. Uh, the 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 sort of um, the counterpoint to that would be that United still seem like they get a little bit overrun in midfield. Now whether that's down to McTominay or or Pogba, you know, and, and maybe maybe they don't mesh necessarily brilliantly together. Um, but they do they do still lack a real controller. Like a Varadi or, or or somebody like a Fernandinho, somebody like that who's going to get on the ball constantly and dominate it. But I mean, the in terms of yeah, in terms of the two performances, I think you know they were obviously unlucky-ish to to not come away with the three points last night. Um, I, yeah, I'd be really interested to to see how they go now for the rest for the rest of the season, or at least for the next couple of months, and see if they can keep the the, the these performances up. Dan James looks like a really good signing, really really good. Like I was, I was kind of I was interested to see how he get on because he's rapid. He's rapid. Like well, in my own role, obviously with, with Statsports, we look after the GPS performance tracking for for Manchester United. And like the tests apparently that he was doing in preseason were off the wall in terms of speed and um, max speeds. Like he'd hit 37, 38 kilometers per hour, which is up there with Mbappe, who's obviously one of the fastest players in in you know European and world football. Um, I was kind of so, hoping he'd um, he'd get into a foot race with a Demetriori yeah, when he came yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, I was just yeah. waiting for that to happen. Yeah, yeah, the two guys are just absolutely rapid. Like, do you know what I mean? I would, I'd love to see them in, in, in like, you know, if you could sort of mesh two generations together, I'd love to see them in a race against like Julian Dix or somebody like that. Like, do you know what I mean? See how that would go down. Neil Ruddock. Yeah, yeah, Neil Ruddock. Yeah, yeah. 
But uh, no, I mean, like if I was a United fan, I'd be I'd be reasonably optimistic about um, how they could go this season. And I think just to finish off um, on that point, I think like you know when the, the transfer sort of window closed and United fans, a lot of United fans were like really unhappy, seemingly with, with, with how it went. I, I like obviously it's only two games of the season in, and it's you don't want to be making long term predictions. But I, I, like like I said, I think. That could make a little bit of a mockery. That's just my own kind of feeling on it now. It could make a little bit of mockery of that. But yeah, it, it, yeah, that that would be my feeling on it. I think back to Daniel James for a second. He seems like a kind of quintessential um, Sir Alex Ferguson player. I mean, yeah. like you said, he's rapid quick, but I feel like you could tell him to do any sort of job. I, I, like I could have imagined if he was playing under Ferguson, like Ferguson would say, I'm going to put you right back and you're going to mark Mbappe for this mm-hmm. 90 minutes. It's something like he would do. Um, I think moving on quickly now um, to the big game of the weekend, which was Manchester City and Spurs. Um, and I think another week goes by, another very controversy. Um, I thought at the time um, there was nothing in it. I don't think the Spurs players thought there was um, an issue. Um and obviously, I think there's a video going around with Laporte whispering in Maris's ear, saying um, something probably along the lines that I think I, I think I touched it with my arm, and Maris's face dropped. Um, <laughs> Phil, I mean, for me, this was an absolutely terrible case for Ver. And last weekend, we kind of went through um, some of the good scenarios where it came into play. But I mean, if you're picking up instances where nobody except someone watching in minor detail on a super slow-mo camera can pick it up. I mean, that's really sucking the life out of the games, I think. Yeah, so I've actually I've put a decent bit of thought, as sad as I am, into VAR since, since this happened on Saturday evening. Because before the start of the season, I would have been kind of vaguely pro-VAR um, in the idea that it was going to stop kind of really basic, egregious errors from occurring. But two weekends in, I'm really very quickly becoming quite anti-VAR in its current form. Like you said, like that error, which initially didn't look like anyone in the stadium was aware of, even Laporte, now maybe with this new video, it looks like maybe he possibly was, but like 99.9% of people in the stadium watching on telly didn't have a clue that this thing was after happening. And fair enough, if they're going to be absolute about this handball rule um, and offside because they are two absolute things. Like we were saying last week, no half pregnancies. You're you're offside or you're not. And in this instance of handball, it's handball or it's not. What I'm kind of troubled by is the idea that they're steadfast in the idea that there will be no wrong decisions on that, but that there needs to be a clear and obvious error for them to get involved in things like uh, tackles and stuff like that. So I'm just a bit uncomfortable with the idea that they're accepting that some things they're okay to be wrong about. It either feels like you're going to be right about everything or you're completely okay with mistakes. You, I don't know if you can pick and choose what you're uh, okay with being wrong on. Because if you're, if the, like the threshold for interference, as Mike Riley said at the start of the season in the Premier League, was going to be quite high and it was going to be the, the same as phrase, a clear and obvious error. It's kind of like what we said last week with the offside what's clear and obvious and what's clear and obvious to Guardiola might be different to what's clear and obvious to the ref clear and what's clear and obvious to VAR and it just opens the refs and the the organisation I think up to loads of criticism like we've seen from Guardiola with his kind of smart ass comments about maybe VAR was having a coffee in this moment and all that sort of stuff I think it just leaves them very open it, it, it just feel, it feels weird that 
they're kind of being selective over what they're going to get involved in. Um, and you're kind of opening yourselves up to the managers just having a real cut off you. I, it, just, it just seems like a recipe for disaster to me because it's going to come to a situation later in the season where they get involved in one clear and obvious error and they don't get involved in another one that's marginal and a manager's going to lose his absolute shit because his team didn't get the call. Lads, lads, lads. I'm so disappointed in you. I really am. Like, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put, right, anti-VAR people in the same category as hard Brexiteers, (laughs) anti-vaxxers, anti-vaxxers, and people against climate change, right? Because, (laughs) like, look at it, look at it. Like, can you answer me this truthfully? Was that decision... In, within the laws and rules of the game, was that decision incorrect? No, it, it was correct. It was correct. I mean, yeah. and this is the this is the crux of the matter: is that you know the, the the law might be an ass, right? But but VAR is not an ass. So I mean, like like VAR, okay, VAR spotted it, but it, in essence, like the handball rule is is complete and utter codswallop, like. That is, I think everybody can agree on that. However, he did, like, the ball hit his hand. So, going by the rules, VAR picked that up and it's a free kick out. So, I mean, I I don't understand. Maybe I'm completely missing this. So, everybody seems to have an issue with, um, you know, with VAR. But it's not actually VAR. It's the rules you've got an issue with, Mm. not VAR. My Um, issue... So. Sorry, Kane, my issue is, not, so they're, they're absolute on handball. That's fair enough. The tiniest, mm. like, off, uh, Laporte's nail is, is a handball. Raheem Sterling's armpit's offside. I'm, I'm granted that's interpretation. Mm. Mm. Cool. But my problem is that then for things like fouls and things that are more kind of subjective, there's a clear yeah. and obvious threshold. So that's my issue, that they're absolute on some things and they're clear and, ob- and, they're clear and obvious on the other. So... If but somebody, when it comes to a foul, but when it comes to a foul, Phil, if it's yeah. if it's a foul on the pitch, that's down to the referee, as far as I'm aware. That doesn't come down to VAR. So it's only like they, they will only discuss a foul if it's within the box. I I, I was under the impression that VAR could get involved anywhere if there's a clear and obvious error. I thought mm, that was the threshold I, rather than. I, I mean, I, 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 I could be all wrong on that as well. Yeah, I, I would like to see that checked. I'd love to see that within the rules because I was under the impression that it's all, like it's it, like um, I, I, basically what I was under the impression of that on the pitch, the referee, as in like you know, sort of in and around outside the box, basically like in the middle of the pitch, which sounds a bit ridiculous, but the referee can award fouls and doesn't have to revert to, to VAR or anything like that, unless it's. In terms of clear and obvious, it could be like, you know, with somebody stamping on another player out and the referee's not seen it. Do you know what I mean? So it's out of, it's, you know, or like the Ford official has not picked it up. Um, and then they can go to VAR. But like, I mean, yeah, for, for me, like, I think everybody just has an issue with the, with the actual laws of the game. And, and that I've no issue with. But VAR is getting decisions correct. Like every, pretty much every decision, bar I think the Sheffield United um, one was the Che Adams um, Sheffield was no it was was a Sheffield United. There was an issue with one of the Sheffield United I think goals or like should have been sending off and VAR didn't pick it up or whatever. But in in, in like nine out of ten cases it's 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 it, it's got the decision correct and that's what you want. That's what everybody's been calling for, like you know for the last like ten years. So now you, you sort of. 
everybody's kind of like moaning and pissing and moaning about it and it's just like this is what you asked for like the the the, the, the fact it matters that the laws of the game are not are not being sort of are not being dished out correctly that's what we've all been really having an issue with and, and that's what we're not getting correct but i mean like you've got people like danny murphy on on um on match of the day and i was talking about this on twitter and like i mean like that guy's stupidity knows no bounds. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, he is talking about, he's talking about basically like how VAR is sucking the atmosphere and, and, and the emotions for fans out of the game. And that's absolute nonsense. Like, if anything, it's it's like, like I said last week, if anything, it's multiplying the emotions within the stadium. It's like people have no idea really what's going on. And again, that's a communication thing within the stadium. But I mean, like, in terms of like, it's like, like for instance, in the Champions League last year between City and, and uh, Man City and, and Spurs, it's just like the ebb and flow of elation and devastation between both sets of fans at the same time was just absolutely incredible. Um, so, like his point is nonsense. His point that it's not getting decisions correct is also nonsense. Danny Murphy is a nonsense. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, the whole VAR thing. It's like I was talking about last week. I think we just need to have a whole big slice of get the fuck on with it. I think you're spot on about the rule being the issue rather than the VAR, which finds the rule for you in terms of like, it, it can find these handballs if there is one. Exactly. But, yeah. um, and I think we said it last week. I mean, fair enough, they got rid of the kind of the charade with bringing the referee over to the sideline. But I think if Michael Oliver had seen that replay, I don't think he would have given that penalty if he did have the option. But that comes down to the rule that was changed to favour VAR in terms of to take out the kind of grey area if, it's, if it touches its hand it's a foul so it definitely needs a, a little bit of TLC there's touching the ball touching hands in in, mm-hmm. in the box but I think the severity I mean I don't think it meant to do it it didn't impact the flight of the ball nobody saw it VAR saw but it Kev's, and I think but Kev if you go back to the rule right again you go back to the rule the rule basically says that if the ball touches anybody's hand yeah. within the within the box, it's a free out, or, or it's at least a free out, or it's, mm. is it also a penalty? But it's no, definitely it's, a free out if the ball touches your hand. The, yeah. It's only for the attacking team, the uh, uh, for the defending team. It's a, uh, yeah, sorry, for, 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 for the yeah, exactly. So it, yeah, yeah, and that and that does actually. I mean, now I think about it, if that is the case, you know, for for that does make sense. I would I, I would say because. I know it's not intentional, but at least you're gaining a at least you're, you, but you're gaining an advantage. Do you know what I mean? So at least you cut out and make it completely objective. Do you know what I mean? And it's not a subjective thing where it's like left up to the referee to decide whether it's intentional or not. If the ball hits your hand, it's a free out, and you get an advantage. It's a free out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, I'm going back on what I said earlier. <laughs> I think it's a good idea. Um, but well, in terms there. of like, in terms of it. it if the ball does hit the hand for the defending team, is it a penalty or not? And that goes to VAR. Surely that's also a good thing. I, I, I looked up what yeah. VAR is for, considering we're talking about it the last two weeks. I suppose it's a good thing to know exactly what it's for. It's Don't for ruin goals. me here, Phil. Don't ruin me. No, it's for goals, red cards, penalties and mistaken identity. Right. But it's anything leading up to any of those things. So 
it's not it's not it's kind of a mix of what we were both saying so it's not just what happens in the penalty area if it's a goal mm. but a lot of those things happen in the penalty area maybe apart from red cards and um, obviously mm. like penalties have to happen but they can review anything in the lead up to any of those things basically um, yeah, and like, open ended yeah my main misgiving with VAR is that in some things it's completely absolute and dictatorial and that's fine but in other things it's there's a threshold they have to pass and I think it, it just leaves them open to interpretation um, so it, it, it just leaves the managers loads of chance to give out if, if something doesn't go their way and it kind of adds to that kind of air of everyone's out to get me now as a Liverpool fan this weekend I'm, del- I'm delighted Pep is basically that uh, gif of Charlie from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia with like all the crazy <laughs> scrollings on the wall behind him and he's like ramping that's Pep and I'm cool with that he, he'll have the coat again out he'll look desperate it's great but like I, I just know at some stage in like March next year and Liverpool are playing like Newcastle and Anfield and something goes against them and they lose the league because of it I'll, yeah, I'll slip out basically <laughs> I, um, I think leaving Ver for a minute and I'm sure we'll probably be talking about it next week and for the rest of the season until uh, until our minds explode on um, the pros and cons of Ver but on the match no way, itself that's no way <laughs> on the match itself um, it was fairly one-sided I mean it was just a barrage for Manchester City and how they didn't come out with all three points I'm not too sure um, interestingly Pip after the game said um, that he felt it was one of City's better games even though they considered um, a bad goal to Lamela early on to equalise um, do you think I don't know this is obviously very early in the season but Phil do you think this will be uh, two points that could uh, make or break the league title race come May so like initially in like the immediate aftermath of the final whistle I was like that's great City have dropped points already brilliant when I thought about it a bit more and watched Matt to the day back and all the rest of it it actually kind of worried me because if like what consensus is the third best team in the league can rock up to the Etihad and get absolutely battered like that and kind of look out on getting a point, it kind of doesn't bode well for how many points City are going to drop otherwise. Um, like, if Spurs, who are, like, they got the Champions League final last year, they knocked City out of the Champions League, they're a really, really good team, as everyone knows, and they got absolutely torn to pieces, and were pretty poxy to get a draw. It kind of makes me nervous about what they're going to do to everyone else. So in this specific incident, mm. it's, like, it's obviously, in, from, like, the Chase and Pack point of view, it's great to City have dropped points. If you look, if, forget about the result, like that kind of Van Hal thing about uh, like r- reporting on results. If you get rid of the result and actually look at the game, it's really scary for what City are going to do to people for the rest of the season. Yeah, I heard uh, Ken Early from another equally brilliant Irish podcast <laughs> uh, talking about how, um, talking about how Spurs no City had like thirty attempts to Spurs 3, which is like absolutely outrageous when you consider they're probably the first, or at least, yeah, the first and third best teams in the league. So, you know, the disparity there in quality is is like slapping you right in the face with a massive fish. But, um, yeah, I, I, I don't really know how it bodes for the rest of the season. But the fact that Spurs came away with, two, with, 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 a, with a point, you know, should should you know give you some sort of insight into the fact that city can be got at like they they can be got at and they can they, you, you can score goals against them however in saying that liverpool do look a little bit open at the back at the minute themselves so mm-hmm. if those two are, are going you know head for head for the title again yeah uh, yeah 
there's there, there could be a lot of goals scored basically. Um, I think we have to spend a minute on how good Kevin De Bruyne is playing right now. I mean, yeah. <laughs> to, to bang out Klopp's favourite phrase, he's like a new season this year. But I mean, he's unbelievable, and he makes it so easy. And Michael Cox, aka his own American, had a had a pretty good analysis of of his performance. And it's just the little things. I mean, taking five, ten steps back to receive the ball in a better position that he can cross in, which he did for um, for the opening goal for Sterling. And I mean, it's it's everything about his game is just top class. And I mean, he could have the player of the season wrapped up come November if he keeps this up. Yeah, like I I had tried to convince myself um, before the start of the season that like the injuries are going to mount up on him and he's not going to be. Uh, the same player and he's getting another run and this kind of like Michael Cox was explaining in that article that kind of shift in system to play him kind of as as a 10 in behind Aguero just seems to like absolutely clicked right away um, just those those clips of his movement and his like orchestration of that first goal like <laughs> like you said it's so simple but it's just so absolutely effective and it's he knows exactly what he's doing like I'd imagine he nearly knew before he got that ball to whip it out to the wing in the first case, I'd say he knew he was going to end up trying to whip it across the sterling. So, like, it's... He just has it on a string at the minute, and it's, it, it's another reason to be kind of scared of City, I suppose. Yeah, he, he, he really just does wonders for gingers, doesn't he? Like, he is absolutely <laughs> just... <laughs> like, he is absolutely just a phenomenal footballer. Um, I, like the the one I know it's only in preseason, but the the I don't know if you you watch the game against West Ham in that Asia Premier League trophy, and kind of like hit this side volley on a ninety degree angle, um, about like sixty yards cross field to like Raheem Sterling or somebody, and it just aesthetically like it just looked the most beautiful thing, um, like his his game intelligence. His dribbling ability, his passing ability, his long-range shooting, like everything that you would want in an outfield footballer, he essentially has. Um, it's yeah, I, and and the scary thing is, I think he's only 26, is he? I'm yeah, not right. too sure. He, he, yeah, he's 26. I mean, like he's not even hit his peak yet. I mean, he's probably got a year or two years before he hits his peak. If he can remain injury-free, I mean, you're, you're already talking about one of the best footballers in the world. World, um, so you, you just, yeah, you, you just hope that you would just hope that kind of Pep hangs around for maybe a couple of seasons more, just to kind of eke as much quality out of De Bruyne um, as possible. But he's phenomenal, lads. Um, so we would planned to to talk a little bit about um, Sheffield United and their Irish contingent, which uh, which are doing so well, um, and then Keane, like you said, uh, a very equally good Irish soccer podcast kind of beat us to it on on Monday with their episode um, but I think we'll stick to our guns and and see what we can come up with um, and it was great to see Sheffield United pick up their first win against Palace at the weekend um, they're kind of being, being talked about as these kind of tactical uh, revolutionaries coming up from the championship with this with this new system with a tree at the back and these overlapping centre halves and what have you Um but from an Irish point of view, we have two players leading the line. Um, we've Enda Stevens, who I saw a clip of him sending Andros Townsend or Arsways with a with a little step, bit of a step over. Um, we've John Egan, mm. who seems to be their centre back, who stays back no matter what. 
to have four Irish players kind of knocking on the door of the Irish national team all starting in the Premier League mm. really kind of puts a huge positive effect on all the kind of doom and gloom that we've had and we spoke about it a lot last year it kind of it, it really brings Irish the, the Irish national team up a, up a peg or two yeah I, I think it's, it's like it's absolutely brilliant to have so many of them starting in the Premier League team I think even more so it's really encouraging to see them do it in a team that's playing in such an interesting and innovative way so no disrespect but we've had a lot of players play for Burnley in the last couple of years and it's great to have them in the league and they've all been players of a good standard, but Burnley play in a very specific way. Um, so it doesn't really, it didn't really change our opinion of what Irish players are. But to see four players play in such an innovative system and know that they can meet the demands of that system is really encouraging. I think so. We're kind of putting further, we're kind of f- further putting to bed that lie about like Irish players not having technical qualities that you'd like to see when you, because Chris Wilder wouldn't put up with them if they weren't able to fulfil kind of ball-playing demands he has on them. So I I think it's good to see them playing full stop. I think for me, it's even more encouraging to see them do it in a team that's actually playing a bit of ball because it proves that they can do it. Yeah, yeah. I I was actually delighted for for Enda Stevens and Callum Robinson in particular, obviously, because both of those were in the, you know, in and around the Villa squad, um, which at a time when the club was just toxic from top to bottom, um, and Stevens really like obviously signed for Shamrock Rovers and uh, didn't really get a look in. I think he maybe started a couple of games. Callum Robinson came through the youth ranks that that successful uh, next gen youth next gen um, winning squad. So he didn't really. He was obviously reasonably highly rated, but just didn't really make an effect and didn't have an effect. And yeah, it just goes to show you when when these players when they leave those kind of sets kinds of set, setups and they go to these like well run you know highly functioning clubs with good progressive managers they can thrive um so yeah i'm just i was delighted and in terms of in terms of robinson i think he could be a reasonably big player for ireland in the next couple of years particularly under um chris wilder's stewardship you know he, he'll learn a lot from wilder um, so yeah, it was really encouraging, really, really encouraging. It was encouraging in regards to Callum Robinson that he was bought by Sheffield United rather than being promoted with them. That yeah. their scouting department actually mm. looked at Robinson and thought he's a Premier League player that we're we're happy to to spend some cash on because I don't think they spent a lot of money in the in in the summer. So the fact that they looked at Callum Robinson and said he's good enough for the Premier League and he can lead our line it has to be a huge sign for uh, for Ireland as well. And depends on the quality of the eggs. In the supermarket you have eggs class 1, class 2, class 3. And some are more expensive than others and some give you better omelets. So when when the class 1 eggs are 
in vitros and you cannot go there. Real Madrid is no Barcelona, it's a office small team, have many problems. I want my players to play with balls. We're on with Robbie Dunn, an Irishman in Madrid covering La Liga for us um, to talk about a little bit about La Liga after the first weekend of play there. How are you, Robbie? I'm all good, lads. How are you doing? Good, good. Robbie, I think we'll start with Barcelona um, and the melting pot there. They got off to a, a fairly atrocious start last Friday night against Athletic Bilbao. Um, they've since sent Philip Coutinho on loan to, Bar- to Bayern Munich for a year. Um, they're possibly looking at Neymar as essentially a straight swap in another loan situation from PSG. Um, and then it's come out today, I think, or at least yesterday, that uh, Dembele is possibly out for, for a couple of weeks, um, bringing their forward line uh, down a number. And I think Suarez is struggling as well. And Griezmann kind of hasn't really got up to speed either. Um, are Barcelona in a, in a little bit of a panic mode at the moment? Oh, they are, yeah. I mean, they're um, they have been since the end of last season. That Liverpool game absolutely rattled them, and, and the Roma game in the in the year before that. This is a this is a, <laughs> I've said it before. It's a scarred football team. Those two games have, have scarred them, and they their their modus operandi now is to win the Champions League, and they're going to go all out for that. And they they've been winning La Liga comfortably. And in the last couple of years, which kind of um, takes away a little bit of the merit from it. Like, like it's a really, really difficult um, competition to win, obviously. But the fact that they're winning it so comfortably, it's almost seen as a given now. But And, and, and they're all out for that Champions League. Um, the, the Liverpool game, obviously, just an absolute abomination, that, that game in Anfield. Uh, the pressure was... And, and then they went on and lost the Copa del Rey final to Valencia. So uh, the pressure was on Valverde at that point. Um, and this, and it looked uh, for a while like he was actually gone. He was out the door at Barcelona um, at the start of the summer, but they kind of just decided, listen, there's no options there to replace him. Um, we're, it would be a knee-jerk reaction to one res- to one game. Let's just see how this goes. But this that game against Bilbao just uh, piles the pressure on even more, and I, I would say they're definitely maybe not in panic mode after one game but with the injuries with the injury situation or sorry with the injury situation yeah uh, I would say they're starting to get a little bit hot under collar I'd say definitely especially after um, signing off on, on that Coutinho loan um, I, I think if we stick with him for a moment I mean I suppose from, from an Irish perspective we didn't get a whole pile of La Liga on TV last season so we didn't see too much of him but was he really that bad that uh, they were happy to kind of move him on for a year? Uh, the answer to that question is actually uh, no. He wasn't that. He wasn't bad. He was just completely and utterly anonymous, which which I don't know which. <laughs> I mean, it almost felt like he had given up. And, and and this is an issue that Barcelona had with him. And this was the, these reports were coming out maybe six, eight months ago. That And it was the same with Liverpool. Once Barcelona had his head turned, he, he, he had this mysterious back injury at Liverpool. Mm. And 
and and Klopp didn't feel comfortable playing him because he, he he's he's considered like this kind of he's, he's ultra professional. He, he's a lovely guy, but he's just supposed to be really sensitive. And once the the, the kind of tide turned on him there at Barcelona, he there was no, you could sense it. The, the players were coming out trying to back him up, trying to give him a, a G up, and trying to help him. But once his once his confidence was gone, that was it. Um, and uh, you could see that. Um, so. I, I think I think the 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 loan deal is is best for all parties because you're just going to be left with another frustrating year. I think with him, uh, he he needs a fresh start. I think he's even said that since he moved to Bayern. So uh, no, he wasn't bad, but he was just anonymous, and it just just one of those transfers that absolutely and utterly did not work out. <laughs> Um, it feels a bit strange then in that case that they're possibly looking to Neymar, who probably is a bit sensitive himself, but in terms of being a model professional, he couldn't get further away from, from that kind of title. Can you see that deal happening or is it just kind of paper talk for now? Yeah, it, it, it seems as though Real Madrid have entered into the talks and I, I heard Juventus' name mentioned, but it, 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 it just uh, on a personal uh, on a personal. Um, perspective it seems like it just feels like they're trying to extract whatever they can out of Barcelona they're trying to put like what like because Barcelona have been kind of humming and hawing um, about the deal they've said oh we're not really all that interested Uh, we he's still a player things like that they've never publicly come and said we want him and um, it just feels like this the end game here is for PSG to just extract uh, to call Barcelona's bluff and just to see exactly what they can extract from him. They've been kind of, as I said, humming and hawing about it and they're just trying to see what exactly are they willing to give up here. They know that Barcelona are desperate to win this Champions League. They know that Neymar is the kind of player who can win the Champions League for them um, and they're just trying to wait out and see maybe they could get home Titi, maybe they could get Rakitic. Uh, Coutinho's gone now, but maybe uh, Dembele, obviously, he's, an in- he's injured now. That's probably off the off the table, but they're just trying to see exactly what yeah. they can expect from this deal, basically, yeah. So maybe they're kind of using Real as a bit of a carrot in that Barcelona definitely don't want him to go to Real, and that might entice Barcelona to make the move. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, that that's a report I read, and just uh, just come out of work there. And one of the writers for our, our newspaper was saying, basically, kind of a strange one. He was saying, basically, Real Madrid are there in case uh, PSG need them to do them need them to do them a favor uh, in an emergency. Maybe Real Madrid will be there to 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 pick up the baton and, and kind of take one for the team for PSG because there's this kind of a war going on between PSG and Barcelona. Started with Neymar, we had Rabiot, we had Verratti, uh, Frankie de Jong in the summer, um, uh, the, the young English guy Luis Barry just signed for Barcelona. PSG were mad, were really keen on him. Uh, just kind of this little war going on between PSG and Barcelona at the moment and I'd say PSG would 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 honestly they'd they'd, they'd prefer to sell them to yeah. Bar- Barcelona at the moment um so yeah there's uh, there's obviously that aspect to it too so um in case of emergency break less for Madrid kind of a situation there <laughs> yeah um, in case of emergency call <laughs> um i think moving over to Madrid then um i mean in the headlines over the summer, they were kind of the basket case team with the whole Garrett Bale versus Zinedine Zidane um, situation there. And then looking at their team sheet from Saturday against Celta Vigo, uh, where they won 3-1, there wasn't a single new signing in the starting 11. 
and Gareth Bale was there front and centre. It was a fairly fairly huge win for Real and he, he kind of kicked their season off to, off to the right tune. What's the story with Gareth Bale? He, had, he, he very, very nearly moved to China, but now it looks like he's going to be leading the line for Real, at least for the first couple of weeks of the season. Yeah, it looks it looks like that. I mean, uh, it, it 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 seemed as though, and I, and I I don't think that the that the relationship between Bale and Zidane is particularly good at the moment. But I, I'd say both of them are professional enough to be able to put it behind them, because Bale isn't leaving. Like he he said, and Jonathan Barnett has come out and said, like, listen, Gareth likes Madrid. He he's he's on seventeen million euro a year. <laughs> Unless someone's going to match that and match the match his lifestyle, uh, match uh, Real Madrid's, I guess, ambition, stuff like that, he was not going anywhere. And it just looked like a really, really difficult deal to do. Uh, Zidane came out and said that, obviously, after the... I think it was after the, the first game they played, maybe Arsenal or something like that, in the preseason. He said, listen, it's uh, it's better now if the deal just gets done. He said, it's better. And, and it got... He said, it's better if Gareth leaves tomorrow. But what and I know it sounds terrible, but what he meant was, I think, or what he was trying to say was, it's better now that the just thing that the whole thing just gets sorted out at this stage because that China deal was done, it was signed and sealed and almost delivered, but uh, at the uh, at at the eleventh hour, it uh, just it didn't go through. Um, so yeah, like there was zero signings in the summer, and and Real Madrid signed all those new players. They signed Ferland Mendy, Luka Jovic, uh, Hazard, obviously. Um, but these, aside from Hazard, they were all backup players. Like Ferland Mendy's going to back up Marcelo. Luka Jovic is a, is a second option in case Zidane wants to kind of change his tactics or play a second striker or or to give Benzema a little bit of a break. So, so these were all kind of. It was just to add depth to the squad, but they also it was all, almost counter, very counterproductive because they got rid of Ceballos, they got rid of Llorente, and they got rid of Sergio Reguilón, who, who was excellent against uh, for Sevilla against Espanyol in the first game. Uh, he's he's on loan there, so it was kind of kind of a strange summer for them. Yeah, it looked like they got their business done and looked like they had their homework done and and, and they knew what they wanted to do. But then when you looked at the team against Celta Vigo, it was uh, same same as it ever was. Um, and yeah, Bale. Like I think this is often forgotten, and and it's kind of similar with the Dembele injury. Now, people kind of assume that the the the, the injuries that Bale has is some kind of a, a flaw he has, and I get that that it's not ideal. But when he's fit and when he's playing and when he's the confidence of player, we're looking at a top fifteen player in the world here, and and I think that kind of gets forgotten, especially in Madrid here, because. They treat him as if he's just some some bum, like you know, and uh, <laughs> at, at times, and uh, I think that gets forgotten a lot of the time. But but he can be the difference maker for them. And if he's if he's fit, as I said, uh, he he definitely can be the different difference maker for them. And if Zidane, which I think he is, and Bale are professional enough to to, to kind of put this behind them, definitely Bale is going to play a massive part for Real Madrid this season. Taking one of their new signings there, um, I saw an interesting headline about um, Luka Jovic, who signed from Frankfurt there the summer for 60 million euros. Um, there's kind of rumours that he isn't fitting in or possibly going yeah. out on loan already. Is, is there any truth to that? Or is yeah. just kind of people I, jumping to uh, conclusions there after him, after him starting on the bench? 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, he, he started against Arsenal in his first game and uh, Nacho was sent off and he was sacrificed. And 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 then he started against Atletico and he took a knock to his knee in a collision with Oblak. And then all of a sudden it was kind of like, what, what's this guy doing? He, he had to go off in the first half. So it was, <laughs> it was definitely an underwhelming pre-season, but absolutely, I think everyone just jumped to the gun or jumped the gun and, and assumed, oh, he hasn't fit in, he's not, he's not settling properly. But I also think that was probably coming f- due to the fact that it was kind of maybe a little bit of a power move from Zidane. He, he was absolutely gone demented looking for Paul Pogba and he was like, they were probably thinking... There was 60 million spent on Luka Jovic. If we had have saved that 60 million on a player that is maybe not a luxury, they needed him in terms to, to add depth, but he's not, he, he wasn't an essential. If they had have saved that 60 million, maybe saved the, the, I think it was 30 million or something on Ferlan Mendy, they would have probably had about 220 million then to spend on Pogba, and that probably would have got that over the line. And I think Zidane was really upset at the fact that Madrid didn't go all out to get Pogba. And they signed all these kind of peripheral players. And then they looked at it and said, thought, OK, we spent 200 million, but we didn't get the guy that we wanted. And I think Zidane is, is definitely looking at going, what, why, did we, why did we do that? <laughs> so, but yeah, I, I think Jovic would be fine. But, but at the moment, he's just, he is a peripheral player. He is uh, just to add depth there. And, and Benzema is going to be number nine for the foreseeable future. Robbie, it's, uh, Phil here, just to uh, ask you a quick one, uh, kind of moving across the city away from Real. Uh, I suppose like one of the, the transfer coups of the summer was Atletico signing this Portuguese wonder kid, Joe Felix from Benfica, about 120 million euro. Um, and yeah. for people for people like me whose exposure to, to Joe Felix may be limited to what was written about him in the papers and like match clips on Twitter, uh, mm-hmm. would you be able to tell us what sort of player Atleti have got uh, based on what he's been doing in preseason and how he did in the first game of La Liga? Yeah, he's um, obviously he's just a youngster and he, he came in with the 126 million uh, price tag. Um, I actually went to his presentation at the Wanda down the road here, and he was he's he's a really cool, calm character. And I, I like uh, given the fact that he had just signed a deal to be the, one of the most expensive signings ever, I thought he was very very calm. He's slotted right in there as kind of. He's not maybe a traditional number 10. I'd say a second striker he is. Uh, he was kind of subdued a little bit by Katafe on Sunday night. Katafe are really defensive, really um, a lot of tactical fouls, we'll say. Uh, quite cynical. Whenever he got the ball, they were kind of targeting him. And I guess he has to get used to that. But um, he did kind of break free a couple of times. And he won that penalty that should have sealed the game. And uh, uh, Morata missed it, um, which made it a little bit tenser than it needed to be. But... Uh, yeah, he he was he's absolutely fabulous. Uh, really good in tight spaces. Kind of, uh, he I I honestly I I'd have him. He could play anywhere. He could play on the right. He could play as a number ten. He could play as a second striker. Um, he's comfortable going coming deep to get the ball. He he's just a fabulous young player. And and we had obviously heard a lot about him because Real Madrid were linked with him and and uh, loads of all the big European teams were linked with him at the start of the summer. And we didn't actually think that Atletico were in with a shout, but they 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 got him. And uh, Simeone is, is is absolutely loves loves the kid and and he's he's settled in perfectly and says he's all, he's just really keen to learn and uh, really open to his uh, concepts and and trying to integrate himself into the team and and. Um, his teammates love him as well. 
it looks for now obviously that uh, an excellent signing and as they say like I mean the 126 million will only be mentioned if he if he's not if he's not playing well so yeah. for, but for now he's an absolutely fabulous signing it looks like Robbie I just wanted to ask you like in terms of Simeone and, and Atleti like how do you do you actually see Simeone kind of changing how Atleti play with with Joe Felix or, or, or is it just going to be you know same old same old Atleti and you know quite reasonably progressive but you, you know that that sort of standard of play that Simeone has set over the last few years yeah no that's that's a massive question coming into the season for them uh, this has happened a couple of times after they won La Liga it was kind of like uh, a lot of teams were sitting back against him because they had moved up and, and teams were kind of more happier to take a point off them and, and they were trying to have to break down defences so we said oh they're going to evolve this year and then they signed like the likes of uh, uh, they signed Gelson Martins uh, Thomas Lamar mm. players like that were like oh they're going to evolve this year never happened and then the next year oh they signed uh, whoever it was that they signed and we're like oh they're going to evolve this year and it never happened and this year it's it's it, it's a little and that was all kind of implicit I'd say this year it's kind of explicit. Coke uh, has come out and said we're we're trying something different now. This is a new Atletico mm. Madrid. He's uh, Simeone is trying to play a four three three. Um, he he wants to be more attacking. Uh, we've seen that kind of in, in in the transfer market as well, and 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 the players that he's kind of targeted with his fullbacks. He's, he's rejuvenated that whole defense. Um, mm-hmm. But but uh, like. When the pressure comes on, is can you can Simeone ever change? We saw it on Sunday night. Uh, Getafe kind of started to pile the pressure on. He took off Joe Felix, who was injured. He he had uh, just uh, some cramps, I think it was. He took him on, on Marcos Llorente and went completely defensive, locked the whole thing down. Uh, like mm. uh, in in a Champions League quarter final against Juventus, they're probably going to go back to Simeone that we know uh, that that mm. kind of structure. But the signs are promising um, in terms of uh, the signings that they brought in and, and, and maybe uh, overall they will try to improve. But I'd say once the pressure comes on, I mean, can a leopard change his spots like, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, sticking there on Atletico there for a minute, I suppose my thoughts would be um, they have a fair bit of turnover there at the back. They obviously got in Kieran Trippier for right back, which is kind of an interesting move to see an English player uh, move over to La Liga but is, is there any hope of them cracking into the top two this year um, obviously losing Griezmann um, to Barcelona and Rodri to Manchester City two big players gone there but you look at Alvaro Morata is a proven goal scorer in La Liga you obviously have João Felix who I suppose you're kind of relying on potential more than anything there but they seem to have a, f- a fairly good starting eleven there that could uh, could be capable of, of of springing a surprise there as the season goes on. Yeah, well, well, uh, I have to correct you there, Kevin, because they actually brought the, like they finished second last year there, and I know traditionally they're not as big a club as Real Madrid, but they have been better and more consistent than Real Madrid in recent years. So uh, yeah, like you, you said about the back there, and um, they lost Diego Godin, Juan Fran, and uh, Felipe Luis, obviously, and. Huge losses in terms of just the dressing room and in terms of uh, legends of the club, but they've reju- they completely rejuvenated the side. Mario Hermoso arrived from Espanyol, and he- he's fabulous young Spanish centre centre back. Uh, Kieran Trippier looked really good at um, at right back on Sunday night, and and so did Renan Lodi. So 
well, they're losing, like, and and you think to yourself, oh, they lost Godin, but it's not they. It's not the Diego Godin that we knew. This this is a this is a Diego Godin in in decline, and they probably uh, they didn't cash out because he left on a free transfer. But they probably checked out uh, at the right time with him. Uh, and with Juan Fran and with Felipe Luis, as some might say it's a little bit overdue. So, like they've got a young, fresh, new team. Uh, Joe Felix, like honestly, he looks like he looks like like I mean, I haven't like I, he he made a run on Sunday night, and I've watched Antoine Griezmann, and uh, maybe not hundreds of times, but I watched uh, Antoine Griezmann at Atletico Madrid tens of times, and I and I and I just turned to one of the guys who was beside me in the press box, and I said. I've never seen Griezmann doing something like that. Just that mm. change of pace, that willingness to drive forward, that that um, uh, kind of impishness, almost like it, it was just brilliant to see. And and with Felix, and and with uh, if he continues to grow on, on at this at the at the pace he's growing at, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they can challenge for La Liga. I think at the moment they're not favourites. Barcelona are probably favourites, but uh, the price is definitely coming down for them. Robbie, just to, to finish off, uh, I was more a question really of how does a lad from a small town in Kildare end up in Madrid writing for us and one of the biggest publications obviously in the country and also write a book on Rio Vallecano? How does that happen? Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, my, my girlfriend's from Madrid and... I lived. I lived in Chicago for a long time when I was young. When I was in my twenties, lived over there for a couple of years, and I, I started learning Spanish. I was working with a a lot of Mexican guys, and uh, I got friendly with them. They started teaching me the, some some of the more unsavory words in the Spanish, <laughs> and, and I just kind of got an interest in Spanish. Started learning it. Met my girlfriend, um, who was living in Dublin at the time, and we we always kind of had a. We were always going to move to Madrid uh, and just kind of bit the bullet three years ago. And when I was coming over, I was thinking, right, what what do I what do I do here? Like, I mean, I've got I was going to come over and teach English and stuff like that. I just kind of started writing about football and stuff. And uh, I said, you know, what? I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to write a book. And uh, it was just absolutely ridiculous idea altogether. And I just said, I just went for it. And at the, at the time, it was a little bit just one of my impulsive ideas that I had. And eventually, <laughs> after maybe four months, I was actually sitting there and I was like, I'm actually going to write a book, haven't I? Uh, I pitched it to pitch publishing and stuff like that. And yeah, just uh, just uh, and, and I and I was living here, got a Rio season ticket holder. I think um, you. You, you and McTair had written a book about Ibar, and I was sitting yeah. thinking, about, yeah, just, I, th- I just think the barriers, the barrier for entry was kind of low in terms of I just pitched pitch publishing the idea, and they were like, yeah, go for it. Obviously, obviously, like it, uh, there was no advance, and they didn't uh, they they didn't invest anything in it, so it was just like, okay, yeah, go for it. And then six months down the line, I came back to them and I was like, yeah, yeah, listen, I've got my first draft of this, or I've got like my outline. What do you think? And they were like, mm. oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, keep keep going, like and and send us the the final the thing once it's done. So yeah, the barrier for entry was kind of low, and people kind of say, "Oh, you wrote a book, fair play to you." But <laughs> the barrier was low, and it was kind of a niche, kind of a weird thing. And I was willing to kind of go and travel to the games and go to the games and watch it and look at it and yeah, just and I, and I think it was um 
and then I just got the job with Ass as well, based on interviews that I had done for that and meeting people through that and stuff. So yeah, I just think that was that was the way um, that was the way, that, and it opened doors for me. Mm. Living the dream, Robbie. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the name of that book, there, Robbie? Oh, it's a working class heroes, the story of Rayo Vallecano. Oh, little, little plug there for the. <laughs> If if you want if you want lads actually I haven't mentioned this to you if you want to do like a raffle or something on Backpage Football I can I can send you a couple of copies and, and that could uh, de- that could definitely be done yeah definitely yeah, yeah. be something we could do it on Twitter this do, week do maybe kind of, some kind of a raffle there yeah um, so we mightn't have any Irish players over in the league anymore but uh, we do have a few writers so uh, we're not doing too bad yeah yeah <laughs> flying the flag <laughs> all right we'll leave it there so Robbie thanks for joining the show. No worries, lads. Thanks a million. Thanks, Robbie. Cheers, Robbie.